Hello, my name is Brandon Boat, and you're listening to the Theater of Public Policy podcast. Our guest for the show was Dr. James Braden, who is the professor and head of the Department of Plant Pathology at the University of Minnesota. He's also the director of Oat Global and co-director of the Stockman Borlaug Center for Sustainable Plant Health. Dr. Braden talked about the importance of genetic diversity in plants, how to cultivate wild plants, and why gene banks can help protect food systems from disease. This show was recorded live at the Amsterdam Barn Hall in downtown St. Paul. I hope you like it. Have a seat. Thank you so much for being here. That's good. All right. Uh, thank you. Uh, I don't. Maybe this is like too easy a place to start, but it just—you're uh, the head of plant pathology, University of Minnesota. So, plant pathology—is that like criminal plants? Like, uh, <laughs> like just what they do wrong? Mostly, it's not. Uh, it's the science of plant health. So uh, we work from really molecules to global ecosystems, uh, ensuring that the plants are healthy, um, including agricultural crops, trees, forests, and uh, we, we do that on virtually every continent in the world. Can, and okay, so maybe that was a dumb question, maybe this is an overly broad question. How are the plants? In general, plants are doing well. They are. That's uh, but good. But like, always there are always new challenges emerging. So it's it's a science that really always evolves, and, and there's a lot more to learn and, and, and do. Okay, so um, obviously this is like literally seemingly as big as like the whole world could be. But maybe we should try and help like set the table for this audience that decided to come out like on a Tuesday night, spend time Thank learning you. about plants. But why? I, you know, we think about, okay, yes, I get it, plants important in terms of agriculture, food, and whatnot, but we've kind of got that figured out, right? So why, why, do, we, why do we care? Why, why is this such a big concern? So, so actually, there's a lot we don't know about plants and how they function and the way they interact with the world around them. And um, as we see a, a changing global climate, as pathogens, as insects continue to evolve... Uh, they threaten plants in lots of different ways, and of course, um, we're we're all dependent on on plants. No matter uh, whether we're vegetarian or not, we're ultimately eating uh, plant products directly or indirectly. So, any risk to plant production and plant health uh, impacts us, and that's not only the food but also the environment that we live in. So, if we like prairies and, and forests, um, that, that's part of plant pathology too. So, give us like an example. One of the things that you're like digging into right now that uh, would you know, we're like, oh, yeah, that, that does seem like a problem. Well, one of the big things that I've worked on for about 20 years is something known as a potato late blight, which is a disease of potato. It also affects tomato, which is a close relative. Um, Wait, are you saying tomatoes and potatoes are close tomatoes relatives? Tomatoes and potatoes are, are, are like that. They're um, Really? Like 8 million years ago, they were, um, they were very uh, closely related, and, and they've since diverged and evolved, but they actually share a lot of the same diseases and pathogen problems. That's Because in my brain, potatoes and tomatoes... Not the no, same. No, no, no. They're, they're actually really, really closely related. One is, like, in, in, in the ground and, like, spawns. Look totally different, but... And then the other one is, like, a little red thing that falls. This is my plant knowledge. They're, uh, they're, they're super... Cl- we've got so much to talk about. <laughs> actually, there's, there, there's a lot. Um, um, not just potato and tomato, but but lots of other things are, are related, like uh, eggplants, a very close relative. Um, 
things like petunia and tobacco, which um, look nothing like those plants, are actually all in the same family. I feel like you could tell me any two things right now are related, and I would just believe you because you have a doctorate. (laughs) At some level, they are all related, I guess, but um, some things are more closely related. So So I'm sorry. I interrupted you just because my mind was blown. Back to potato late blight. So um, that's a disease of, of potato that I've worked on for about 20 years. Um, who's heard of the Irish potato famine? Sure, literally everybody. So um, in the 1840s, a million people starved to death in Ireland and other parts of Europe, uh, largely because of a plant disease, and that was potato late blight. And um, so that, that's a good example. I, well, it's a, it's a horrible example, actually, but um, it, it's a tangible example of how plant health can impact human well-being. So even, even though that 1840, that was a long time ago, um, that's still the number one problem in potato production worldwide today, and it carries about an $8 billion annual price tag in terms of chemical controls and, and uh, yield losses. So, so why did that? I mean, we all maybe know the potato famine. We, we know that it was terrible, but we don't probably know what actually caused it. Or do we know what caused it? Uh, uh, yeah, actually, we know a lot about what okay. caused it. So um, like most points in history, I think it's a, a complicated story. So there were certainly um, social and governmental policies at the time that made the Irish population almost entirely dependent on potato. Um, but we also were growing at that time um, large quantities of potato that had very, very low genetic diversity. And this was at a time before we really uh, had the science of plant pathology. So actually, our, our department at the University of Minnesota is one of the oldest departments of plant pathology in the world, founded in 1907. So the, the potato wow. late blight famine in Ireland and Europe was in the 1840s. So the, the science is relatively new. Um, but the, the, uh, the pathogen actually is, is um, spread on, on the wind and, and can travel long distances. Uh, in the 1840s, Irish farmers didn't know that. So if, if they harvested a tuber that looked diseased, what did they do with it? They threw it outside the, the field. And, of course, the spores just blew back in. So there, there was a combination of a lot of factors, but what lack of knowledge of plant pathology was part of that. And then you were saying part of this is also with the potatoes at that time. A lot of the potatoes, they were the same strand of potato, and so if it was a disease that affected one of them, it probably affected a lot of them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so genetic diversity, diversity in general is good. Um, in agriculture, genetic diversity is really very important because it helps plants be more resilient. So whether we're talking about pathogens or we're talking about some stressor in the environment, the more diverse a plant population, the more resilient it'll be for, for um, dealing with those stresses. But we don't need uh, plant diversity anymore. We have all these chemicals. Uh, like I, Tonight's show brought to you by Cargill, I should have mentioned. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so, I mean, I am curious, like... Have, so we figured that out, and then have we, like, swung back? Or, like, where are we in the sort of genetic diversity conversation? So, so there, there, there are a couple of things. Um, number one, uh, chemical controls for plant diseases are really an important part of agriculture, and, and I think they will be for a long time. Uh, but, but it's not a panacea. So pathogens continue to evolve. So it's very similar to, to the way each year we, we might get a flu vaccine, and every year that vaccine's a little bit different because they're different strains of flu. Uh, in the same way, we get different flavors or different strains of plant pathogens as well. So as the pathogen evolves, chemicals that may have worked one year um, may not work the next. This is the worst Baskin-Robbins. You walk in and they have like 32 flavors of plant <laughs> pathogens. Um, so, uh, okay, so... We, 
we do still have these chemical pieces. It does seem like you hear a lot of people talk about, uh, or at least in a lot of the places we get to spend time, uh, the importance of having this diversity of different kinds of plants. But that seems really, I mean, to be honest, it just seems really hard, right? Like if you're growing one kind of thing and you can plant a billion of them sort of just over and over and over again and it sort of follows like an exact model and you kind of know the stuff to spray on it, like it seems like that's something you can do on a different scale than if you're like, oh, I'm going to plant a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And so I, I, what do we do with that? Yeah, you're exactly right. So, um, you know, thinking about things like the Honeycrisp apple, right? We all love Honeycrisp apples, um, largely grown in, in monoculture, so an orchard of Honeycrisp. Um, McDonald's built their, their empire on their, their French fries, which come almost entirely from a single variety of potato. Um, so that idea of monoculture is um, something that's pervasive in agriculture. I think it's, it's actually a really important part of, of agriculture because we, we have a huge and growing world population. So if we're going to feed people, we need to grow uh, food that is a, grow it very efficiently, that's high yielding, that's nutritious. And monoculture allows that. The downside is this issue of genetic diversity or the lack of genetic diversity. So as scientists, one of our key priorities is to uh, identify useful genes. So that could be a gene for improved disease resistance. Um, and then integrate them into existing crops and, and deploy them in different ways so that we are actually enhancing um, genetic diversity across the landscape. Wait, how do you do that? Like you're like, you find a good gene in one thing and you're like, I'm going to hate tomato gene. I'm going to put you in a eggplant. Yeah, so uh, actually I've spent my whole career working on that. So, um, and we, we have new and emerging strategies for this, but it, it ultimately is sort of a needle in a haystack. And, and one of the things I wanted to talk about were gene banks and the yeah. value of, of wild species and genetic diversity related to crops. Um, and the, the challenge really is, is not finding genetic diversity, it's finding the right genetic diversity for, for crops. Um, and and that, that is a, a challenge, and, and we continue to work on that. So I want to I, I ask you about the gene banks, but almost like a half step before that. Who do you think you are getting to choose what are good genes or bad genes, right? Like, I mean, shouldn't, shouldn't that just be sort of left up to, to random nature universe? It, uh, 10,000 years ago when we were, were hunters and gatherers, I think it, it largely was left up to the universe. Uh, I think the environment always decided what's good and bad genes. Um, about 10,000 years ago, some smart individual, and almost certainly was a woman, um, and I'll explain why I say that in a moment, but um, uh, some, somebody somewhere had the great idea of rather than going out and collecting seed to, to actually throw it on the ground and harvest um, what, what grew up the following year. So that was really, um, hypothetically, that was the advent of, of agriculture and, and really... Uh, change the way people live. So up, up until that point, we really existed in small groups, clans, um, and we foraged for whatever we could eat. So uh, the the amount of space that, that we uh, could access for food really depend, really uh, determined how large our, our clan or our family was. So when we were hunters and gatherers, we really existed as, as small groups. A agriculture really changed that. So suddenly it allowed us to be able to specialize to grow food where we lived. 
and to grow a larger and larger community. So we really literally wouldn't have cities if it wasn't for agriculture. Uh, we wouldn't have seen things like music and art and science emerge and develop to the level that, that they have without agriculture. So it was really a fundamental, um, and I think probably one of the, the most significant um, developments in human history. Yes. Uh, thumbs up, Neolithic Revolution. Uh, you were going to say why it was definitely a woman who figured this out. Yes, I'm glad you asked. So... Um, of course, we don't know this, right? So 10,000 years ago, we don't have any written record. What we do know is that uh, communities around the world about 10,000 years ago discovered agriculture. In many of those communities, um, the, the, the clans really were hunters and gatherers. Um, and in, in, in where we can document those facts, typically the males were the hunters and the females were the gatherers. So I'm, I'm sort of surmising, but I, th- I think it probably was a gatherer who made that initial observation of, of putting seed on the ground and, and gathering uh, where the crop was yeah. the following year. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Go with That's good audience interruption. Uh, good. Yay. Um, <clears throat> um, okay, so we're gene banks. Gene banks uh, is where I go and I store my genetic diversity until I need it uh, later in retirement. Um, very interesting. <laughs> yeah, um, so, do you want to know it there? <laughs> kind of. Uh, if I'm wrong, so, I mean, you no, could no, just you, say you, re- you really are close. So, gene banks oh, are wow. are repositories of genetic diversity, right? Um, and for, for plants, that typically means seed banks. Um, so, these are facilities around the world that store seeds, and it can be seeds of, of crop plants, or it can be seeds of wild um, relatives of crop plants. Um, worldwide, there are about 1,500 gene banks, so this is not a, a small business. This is really a global network. In the U.S., the USDA maintains at least 30 locations across the country that, that preserves genetic diversity of crop plants and their relatives. And is this all – Is this all? I mean, in my head I think, oh, this is great for the apocalypse, right? Like, Because, you know, uh, uh, Dr. Strangelove happens and then we're all in the tunnels for like t- 50 years and then we come out and we're like, who's got the key to the gene bank? Good, we can yeah. plant some eggplant. Yeah, Nor- Norway has us protected in, in that instance. So the, the Svalbard vault, which is uh, – You might know as the Svalbard, and I might be slaughtering that, but <laughs> – um, it's more commonly known as the Doomsday Vault. It, li- it lives, it exists on a, a Norwegian island far above the Arctic Circle, close to the North Pole. And the idea is that the genetic diversity of that agriculture depends on is preserved there in, in the, the case that you know, the world or big swaths of the world are, are wiped out. Um, so that, that's really sort of a, a crown jewel, I think, in the, yeah. the gene bank system. But a lot of the gene banks that we have in this country, for example, are, are uh, repositories of, of materials for research, scientific research, and plant breeding, so plant improvement. So they're really very much active collections and not just museums or, or uh, you know, those... those um, so you're, I mean, you're a pretty big deal in this universe, and so can you, like, call up like a, a gene bank and you can say, hey, I need uh, some weird turmeric. Uh, and they're like, here you go. Yep. <laughs> sure can do that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so I, I've done a lot of work on potatoes. I've mentioned um, in Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin, uh, is the, the USDA collection of, of potatoes. Really? Uh, so it's not just potatoes, but it's some of the 200 wild species that are related to potato, too. And I, I have made extensive use of their materials. Wow. That's, and is it... Is it cool? Is it fun? Is it a Sturgeon Bay? Like, if we if I go to Sturgeon Bay, should I visit the I, Gene Bay? I think it's awesome, actually. So it's 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 pretty interesting. 
Um, you know, part of it is um, racks of, of, of um, vessels with seeds in it. So that, that may not look that uh, dramatic. But if you're there at the right time of year where you can see collections they've planted out or you can actually see some of the tubers, um, tremendous diversity. It's really, really a lot of fun. Okay, so I should say in the second half of the show, we open it up for you all to ask questions of our guests. But maybe just to, again, bring it back a little bit to the, this audience and who – because uh, I don't know. I have a backyard garden, but that's about as far as I get. And so I'm curious for us, like if we're thinking about sort of like how do we interact – like, oh, you've convinced me. It's important to have a genetic diversity and whatnot. Does that mean that I need to – go forage for some tomatoes and then splice them open, take their genes out and try and get them into something else and then plant that. And then next year I'll have a super plant. I'm, what do we do? Well, I, I uh, would actually go to your, your, your friendly neighborhood nursery or your seed catalog or something like the Seed Savers Exchange. And, um, you know, there, there's actually a lot of different varieties that are out there already. So that's personally where I would start. But if you are interested in tapping into this, cross-pollinate plants, two different varieties of plants. Um, you, you get really interesting things that way. That's how I got started in my career, actually, when I was a kid. Really? How did, well, tell me about that. How did you get started as a kid in this? Uh, well, I, I stepped right in that one. <laughs> um, so I, I uh, grew up on a farm, so agriculture was sort of normal to me. And I, um, I don't know, around 10 or 12, discovered plant genetics and, and just thought this is the coolest thing ever. So I've been sort of experimenting and dabbling with it ever since then. And um, somewhere along the way, it turned into a career. Did you, do you have any particular experiment, either like amateur or professionally, that you were like, yeah, that was really cool, like... I, I, I've had um, uh, one really aha moment, and it relates back to that potato, potato late blight story. Um, I've been working with wild species of, of, of potato for a very long time, and there's one species that lives in um, Mexico, central Mexico, in a, a place of the world where potato late blight disease is a huge, huge problem. They actually spray like 20 to 25 times per year to control this, so tremendous pressure. Um, of disease, and, and there's a wild species that lives and grows in this environment. So it, it has good genes for disease resistance. So I have studied that species for a long time and the genes that, that um, allow the plant to resist this. We've, we've um, bred that into potato, and we um, tested that in the same environment in Mexico. And it was, um, you know, for me, it was this incredible moment to walk into the field to see the, the uh, local potato varieties completely wiped out because mm. they hadn't received any fungicide and the materials that we had been developing um, were healthy and green. It was, it was really um, uh, just an incredibly dramatic moment for me. And, and, and really, I, I think that kind of observation made this really tangible and real for me that the value of this genetic diversity of, of the, the wild relatives of plants and the potential to reduce fungicides, to produce more food sustainably, um, that was really profound. I, I love this, and I so want there to be, like, a, a documentary, like, a docudrama movie about you, and, like, I can just see the scene of you walking into the field and just, like... <gasps> The potatoes, uh, like, and I'm serious. Like, this yeah. is like a good scene. Who, who gets to play me, though? I, well, I feel like well, I, one of them will probably oh, do no. something here. So, uh, well, I promise we're going to bring him back in the second half of the show. But for now, can you all help me do a big thank you to Dr. James Brady? We're you. gonna we're gonna take our seats in the audience. Okay, 
people already had questions. So, um, oh, this is always helpful, even though I know some people already had questions. So if you have a question, uh, raise your hand, and I will come towards you with the microphone in a non-threatening manner. And um, I will also give you a sticker. All right, so you were, like, raising your hand already, so you have a question. All right, so here you go. Ooh, that looks like a delicious salad. How appropriate. (laughs) So I'm wondering, uh, lately they've been discovering with the ice melting, they're they're finding specimens from, you know, whatever, eons ago. Would they find seeds? And then the second question is, how old is the oldest seed bank and or seed I'm sorry. What was the second question? How old is the ooh, how old is the oldest seed bank and or seed? Ah, okay. Uh, well, the fir- the first question um, is really pretty interesting. So, so the idea of finding frozen um, seed samples, uh, definitely that is the case. Um, I remember a study that was published a couple of years ago um, that discovered a seed that was ten thousand years old, and the scientists were able to actually regenerate a plant from it. I do not remember what the species was, but it's. It's a species that still exists today, so it provided an uh, incredible opportunity to look at the genetic uh, makeup of that plant 10,000 years ago and uh, compare that with the diversity today. Um, as far as the how old are seed banks, um, I don't really know. The concept's probably been around for about 100, 150 years. Um, so I, I, I think at least in the modern context, it would be in that age. We, we do find um, samples of, of seed from you know, prehistoric fire pits, um, for example. Of course, those are, are generally not viable, so that's that's sort of a different category. But So maybe this is just an, uh, an excuse to talk very quickly, or as long as you want. It's, you're on stage now. Uh, is uh, how a seed actually works. So, like, that's surprising to me in the sense of, like, a seed gets frozen and it just it still works, potentially, yeah. thousands of years later? So, so the one thing I always say to plants and anyone who listens, really... Or, or, no, sorry. Wait, you say... <laughs> there was a slip. The, the one thing I say to students and really anyone who will listen is that plants are incredible. So they, they, do, they do amazing things all the time, and we really underappreciate that. So, so the idea of a seed... Um, or already living thing, right? Actually freezing solid and, and being stored for for decades or, you know, 10,000 years and actually still um, being viable, that's that's pretty incredible. Um, a lot of plants have that capacity. Not not all of them. Plant species really vary dramatically in how well seed will save and under what conditions. But in general, a, a dry, uh, dry, cold environment's really good for preserving most seeds, which is why the Svalbard Doomsday Vault is is where it is. Wow. Okay. Uh, other questions? Other people have questions in the audience? Raise your hand, and at the very least, do it to get a sticker. Okay. Here you go. Sticker. sticker. Yay, sticker. Um, so, sorry to have a second question about seed banks, but um, so if seed banks are such a vital part of our nation's uh, agricultural policy and sort of protection, um, and that's part of the USDA. Um, I guess I'm concerned, or how, sh- how concerned should I be about current appointees by the current administration? Yeah, yeah it's, it's a great question, and, and, and actually it extends well beyond just today. Uh, you, you know, there, there's been, uh, um, seed banks are consistently underfunded, and that's true in this country. It's true 
globally. Um, they're, they're more, uh, you know, I really characterize them primarily as, as repositories of genetic diversity. They certainly play that role, but they also are research sites unto themselves. So there, there are well-trained scientists um, that actually work with what well, we saw an example of a well-trained scientist that works at a, a, a gene bank. Um, so, so they're doing a lot more than just putting seeds on a shelf, right? They're, they're actually studying the genetic diversity. They're studying the crossability, the conditions under which to store them most effectively. Um, and, and we see erosion of those, those positions. We see uh, underfunding of, of, of gene banks in general. Uh, you know, current administration, I, I, your guess is as good as anyone's. I, I guess we'll have to look on Twitter to, to find out. <laughs> oh, God, I really hope he doesn't start tweeting about gene banks. Uh, all right. Uh, other questions? Other questions? Yay. Um, so there have been various mass extinctions of mammals throughout history. Has there, have there also been mass extinctions of plants? You said plants are doing pretty well, but are some plants kind of becoming extinct right now? Yeah, we, we definitely do see that, that same trend um, in, in plants. And uh, anything that really disrupts the environment disrupts pretty much all living things. Um, so, so absolutely, we've seen that. Uh, we also have, you know, for plants, the idea of invasive species is, is a big issue. So, so many of the, the things that we have on Minnesota today are not necessarily native here. Um, think of buckthorn. Buckthorn was actually introduced intentionally as, as a windrow uh, to protect fields from you know, erosion by the wind. And in this environment, it's, it's escaped. And so that really fundamentally changes our Minnesota environment, and that impacts the native plant species as well. So it, um, it's, it's not just those big extinction events necessarily, but it's this constant change. And, and climate change is definitely having an impact on native plants, um, also agriculture, where we grow uh, plants, uh, how they do in those environments, the, the, the insects and the pathogens that they, they encounter. So. Okay. Ooh, I have a question all the way to the front. Oh, and I have a question in the back. Um. <clears throat> uh, Two-piece. One uh, plug for Seed Savers and Decora. Um, you can help fund that by purchasing and by donating and going to visit. It's a lovely place. Um, and two, I mean, I know agriculturally the bean and corn diversity is minimal, in the bank system, what is there a species that's least diverse that we need to work on? Or? Yeah, so, so corn is um, really a, a creation of modern agriculture. So the species is called Zia maize, and it does not exist in the wild um, in that form. So there are wild relatives that are related to it. Um, they look really fundamentally very different than, than corn. Um, you know, if you think of corn and a, a cob of corn with lots of uh, kernels around it. Um, you'd never see anything like that in, 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 in the wild. What you actually see in the wild are um, things that look a lot like grasses uh, that you'd see along the roadside here with a, a short spikelet um, with, with individual seeds that, that as they mature, they just shatter and they, they fly all over the place. So obviously if you're you know, a hunter-gatherer and, and you're looking for food, uh, that's not a good trait. Um, so agriculture actually selected first for some of those wild corns that, that didn't shatter, that the seeds actually stayed together, and then eventually selected for things that had bigger and bigger uh, cobs with, with more and more kernels around them. So in, in the case of corn, um, the, the genetic diversity, uh, we actually have a lot of genetic diversity just in the cultivated corn. 
uh, crop itself, but, but we wouldn't see that necessarily reflected in some of the wild relatives. Oh, yeah, in the seed banks, she's asking, are there... Uh, is there that diversity there? Yeah, yeah, so a- absolutely. So in, in seed banks, you you would see diversity of, of ZMAs, of the, the cultivated corn, both sweet corn, popcorn, as well as field corn. Hmm. Well, that's good. All right. Uh, Where do you stand on granting plants legal personhood? Not because anyone actually thinks they're people, of course, but to give them protections under the law so that they're not wantonly destroyed or... To protect the environment, in some I, ways. yeah, it's a um, th- th- it's kind of a funny question in some ways, but 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 in reality, um, plant poaching is a real problem. So, the idea of of plants that are rare um, and, and maybe you know maybe they're succulents that are are popular or trendy right now, or they're cacti that that are only found in in certain environments. Um, people actually do go out and dig these things up, and they end up in the landscape trade or or in other. Uh, you know, are, are sold or traded in other ways. So it's, you know, it's, it's good if you're a hobbyist, uh, pay attention to where your, your plants come from, especially if they're, they're native plants, um, because that, that, that can be a, a real issue in some cases. Dur- during the um, government shutdown um, a, a while ago, uh, Joshua, uh, the Joshua Tree National Monument, um, Joshua trees, which are these incredible uh, plants, they're, they're actually aloe, um, so they're related to aloe veras and, and, um, um, Wait, is that true? <laughs> I'm actually happy to. They're, they're neither trees. Um, I like just a tip from being a performer for a long time. If you just said it just confidently, say it, say we it. Okay. would totally okay. believe you. Yeah. Um, so they're incredible plants. Let's leave it at that. But um, they and they actually are only found in 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 that part of California in in the um, the area around there. And uh, while the national monument was actually shut down. Um, people went in and cut them down so they could drive four-wheelers across the, the, the landscape. Uh, just terrible, terrible um, activities. So, I mean, so, whatever it takes to protect those plants, I'm, I'm for it. All right. Yes to personhood. All right. Um, I'd like to know if you choose to eat organically. Uh, do I eat organically? Yes. Do I eat conventional? Yes. Do I eat GMO? Yes. So I, I, I think in, in reality... Um, uh, agriculture is, as we've alluded to already, there, there are lots of different ways to do agriculture, and um, food production has many different facets, um, especially when you think about it on a global scale. I'm, uh, as a scientist, 100% confident in the safety of our, our food supply. We could have done this whole show about GMOs or whatnot, but I, maybe we should take like 30 seconds to a minute just to talk about ge- genetically modified organisms. Uh, it's a really big debate about whether or not those are uh, the pros and cons of, of having that, whether they should be labeled as such and everything, and whether they're bad for people. I, I don't know. Can you, as somebody who works in this field, give us sort of a 30-second review of this? 30 seconds, yeah. Or a minute, or yeah. however yeah. long. So, I got a whole other beer here. Go nuts. It, it is actually a question I get a lot, and, and, and I appreciate, um, it, you know, to some degree I appreciate the debate around it, because I think anytime people care about where their food comes from and what it does to the environment, that's, that's a huge win. I think that um, so many of us are really removed from agriculture and where our food comes from. So it's great that people are asking those questions. Um, to me, as a scientist, um, and, and, and I understand how GM food's created, um, it actually is a 100% natural process that a plant pathogen figured out millions of years ago. And then we have since co-opted for scientific and, and, and agricultural applications. Um, and, and so the, the, the process itself, I think, is... 
uh, really well characterized. Uh, more importantly, the products that are produced through GM Technologies are really very rigorously tested by government standards. That testing is incredibly expensive. Um, and what that means is that a lot of the majority of the food that we eat is not GM. And where GM technologies are used uh, tends to be for really high-value uh, traits and high-value crops. And, and so we're really talking about big agribusiness uh, because those are the individuals that can actually afford to, to, to deal with the regulations. Can you say a word or two about also the what is that process? Because this is a piece I don't – like, again, I had an image of you're in a laboratory and you're, like, cutting out and, like, yeah. taking a DNA and putting it in there, but it's not that. Yeah, so, so the, the main way in which um, GM fruit products are made uh, is, is to co-opt the behavior of a natural plant pathogen. It's a bacterium called agrobacterium tumefaciens. Um, uh, sure. So we agro, yeah. we say agro for short. So agro is a, a pathogen that um, millions of years ago learned how to infect a plant and insert its genes into the plant. And what it's actually doing to the plant is, is um, it's transforming the plant. So it's actually changing the genetic composition of the plant. And that causes the plant to produce a, a set of compounds called opines that that particular bacterium love to eat. So the bacterium is actually making the plant make the food for it. So that process um, is really uh, well characterized. In fact, 100% uh, of the sweet potatoes that we eat were transformed by agrobacterium tumefaciens millions of years ago, long before it was ever domesticated. So in, in that context, it How actually is GM. How do we know that? Um, the science. <laughs> so, so actually, <laughs> good answer. So sequencing the, the sequencing DNA sequencing of, of the, the genome of sweet potato revealed that. But what we as scientists have been able to do is, as we understood that process, the way in which that bacterium can infect the plant, we've taken the genes that the, the bacterium wants the plant to, uh, to express, and we put genes that we want the plant to express. So, for example, if I'm interested in reducing fungicide applications in potato to control potato late blight, I can put a genetic disease resistance gene from a wild potato, from tomato, from whatever source, I can put that in first to the agrobacterium and then transform potato with that. Wow. So it's, it's actually a really cool process and from a scientific perspective. Um, it's, it's a fairly straightforward process, um, but the, the actual application piece of it is really very rigorously controlled by, by government standards to make sure the food's safe. Okay, I have two last questions for you. Uh, one... Uh, if you uh, could only, you had to spend the rest of your life with only one plant, what plant would you want to, you already talked about talking to plants. Who's the best listener plant? Yeah, that's, that's tough. <laughs> um, I, how about a plant family? And, uh, sure, I'll, that's I'll, fine. I'll, I'll you can bring the, the whole family. I will go with the Solanaceae, so it's the, the family we've been talking about. So um, if, I, if I have the Solanaceae, I've got potato, I have tomato. Um, we were talking about bland potato food. Um, um, that family also has peppers, so all the capsicum species. Sounds like you're cheating at this point. It's, uh, an, it's an incredible plant family, actually. And it, it um, you know, both from culinary, but, but also from a, a food security piece. So potato is the fourth most important human food crop in the world. So it, it produces more calories per acre than any grain. So it's, it's actually a, a huge, huh. important plant um, the, the, uh, there, there have been scientists who have credited the, um, the um, Industrial Revolution on potato. 
Um, so particularly in Europe, uh, it was such an important crop in, in the 1800s, uh, in part because it, it produced a lot of calories and that allowed for large population sizes of, of, of humans. And that really fueled the Industrial Revolution. And then along came late blight. And, but, um, so it's a great family. <clears throat> okay, so you just picked all of them. Fine. Um, that's good. Uh, so last question, which is you mentioned like at the very beginning, there's tons of stuff we don't know about plants right now. And you have this wonderful space of digging into the research of this, like exploring things. Are there things that you are like, oh, I'm so excited. Like we are on the verge of like figuring this out or like this is sort of where this research is going. And I'm so excited to see where this is going. It, that, that's like every day at work. <laughs> Seriously, I, I absolutely love what I do. I, I think one line of inquiry right now that is really going to fundamentally change agriculture and food production um, grows out of the field of plant pathology. And that, that's the idea of, of seeing microbes as partners in food production. So I, I've talked a lot about plant pathogens, so fungi that infect um, plants, for example, and, and destroy um, productivity. But there are, in fact, a lot of bacteria or fungi that live in the soil that interact with plant roots. Uh, they maybe live inside plants. And they have all kinds of impacts on plant productivity, their um, um, use of water, the availability of nutrients. And if we can actually tap into that, that naturally occurring system and encourage sort of the good guys... Uh, for agriculture productivity, it'll reduce chemical production, it'll increase yields, and it'll create crop plants that are a lot more resilient to a, a changing global climate. So I think this idea of the plant microbiome, and, and you may have heard about the human gut microbiome and the, all the impacts that the human gut can have on our health and well-being, the exact same concept applies to our plants, too. And we're really, this field's um, really in its infancy. So that, that's one of the things that I, I get really jazzed about. I, that is very cool. So uh, on that note, can you all please help me one more time? A big round of applause, Dr. James Brady. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to attend one of our live shows or are interested in working with us on an issue you're passionate about, you can find out more information on our website at www.t2p2.net and on Facebook and Twitter. Also, if you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend about it. Thanks.